Hello and welcome to the Ricky. I'm Daniel Fuchs. I'm Stephen Gams. And I'm Gadalia May. Welcome to a new segment here at the Ricky. We're always working hard to bring you new and exciting content and keep you up to date on clinical research. So here in this new segment, we want to share some interesting articles that we recently came across in our journal club. You're still getting up-to-date research from Top Care Medical Journal, and you're getting it expressed. So let's get into it. Daniel, why don't you get us started? The study that I want to tell you about this week comes with a story. So this week, a patient came into the clinic, and one of her complaints was muscle cramps. The doctor addressed the issue by prescribing magnesium oxide. The question that I'm presenting to you and the question that the author of an article in JAMA May 2017 wanted to know, is that correct? Does magnesium oxide help with muscle cramps? The study was a randomized clinical trial where they gave half the patients with muscle cramps magnesium oxide and the other half got a placebo. Turns out all the patients, placebo and magnesium oxide group, had an equal reduction in cramps. So we learned two things from this. Gedalia, tell us what you see. The first is that magnesium oxide doesn't work better than placebo, so it basically doesn't work to reduce muscle cramps. And secondly, we see that placebo effect is real. All these people were given something to take that they were told would reduce their cramps, and they all had a reduction in cramps. But an interesting question still remains, and we can even call it the question to ponder for the day. Stephen, I know you're also thinking it, so ask the crowd. Uh, Sure. The question that I'm wondering is, should we give magnesium oxide to patients with muscle cramps nonetheless? At the end of the day, it seemingly did help patients cope with their cramps, and it's not like we have other placebo pills to give them. So even if it's not inherently effective, perhaps we should still prescribe magnesium oxide. Yeah, that's what I was thinking about as well. Because when when the doctor first gave magnesium oxide, I was thinking that it won't really help. But at the end of the day, if the patient comes back in three months and they tell us that their cramps are much better, did we not cure them just as well as if we gave them something that does work? On to the next. I wanted to share an interesting article I read this week. The authors wanted to assess whether there is any association between tobacco exposure, both active and passive, and elevated blood pressure in children and adolescents. To do so, they established a cross-sectional study of 8,520 children and adolescents ages 8 to 19, and lo and behold, tobacco exposure was associated with a statistically significant increased risk of high blood pressure after adjusting for possible confounders. This means that tobacco exposure is a modifiable risk factor for elevated blood pressure in children and adolescents? Correct. It sounds like this would include secondhand smoke as well. I don't know if all smokers out there realize that they're putting others around them, including their own children and other people's children at risk of hypertension. So how did they organize the study? The authors hypothesized that tobacco is associated with elevated blood pressure and that the association is dose dependent. Elevated blood pressure was classified in the study as greater than 90% for a child's age, sex, and height, according to the 2017 American Academy of Pediatrics Clinical Practice Guideline. The odds ratio of having elevated blood pressure was found to be 1.31 with a 95% confidence interval for any tobacco exposure after adjustments and were found to be similar across subgroups. So firstly, don't smoke. But if you're going to, make sure you don't do it around others. Next, let's talk about babies. Daniel, can you remind us how babies are made? 
Sure. When a mommy and a daddy love each other very, very much. So IVF has become increasingly more popular over the past four decades. In 2012, close to 1 million babies were born with IVF around the world. Additionally, twins are a common occurrence in pregnancies conceived with IVF. Globally, twin pregnancies is found in IVF conceived pregnancies in up to 18% of patients compared to 0.5 to 2% in non-IVF pregnancies. Additionally, IVF conceived twin pregnancies are associated with increased perinatal morbidity and mortality, including maternal near-death events, preterm birth, low birth weights, stillbirths, and admissions to the NICU. There are many factors that could be contributing to the increased risks. And so this study set out to try to get to the bottom of it. So how do they do the study? This was a retrospective cohort study published in JAMA in September 2021, which included 17 million pregnant women ages 20 to 49, about 270,000 women conceived with IVF, and the remainder of the women without IVF. Okay, that is a lot of babies. Twin pregnancy rates in the IVF group were 32.1% compared to 1.5% in the non-IVF groups. Adverse outcomes were then recorded and compared considering age and many other factors. What were the results, Gadaya? So what they found is quite interesting. Twin pregnancy, IVF, and advanced maternal age were all independent risk factors for adverse obstetric outcomes. Cool. Do you have any takeaway points for us? Well, one thing mentioned in the article was that multiple embryo transfers in IVF is common because it increases the likelihood of pregnancies. However, because twin pregnancy was found to be an independent risk factor for adverse outcomes, maybe elective single embryo transfer should be considered to decrease the overall risk in select patients. And that's all we have for you today. Thank you to all of our listeners. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at therickyteam at gmail.com. Follow us on Spotify, Instagram, and Facebook at The Rick Team. As always, thanks for listening.